Thank you, Jen, for reading for us this morning. What a great focus, what a great time we've had this morning. Just exalting God, looking at Him for who He is and reminding ourselves that, you know, with all the distractions in the world, all the things that we think are great in the world, God is greater, infinitely greater than all of these things. So I know that when you're at home on Zoom, you're probably worshiping with your whole heart, but it's very encouraging when you're here and worshiping with all your heart, and I can hear you, and great, great time this morning. One other program note, if it seems that I'm looking at you funny at all during this message, especially if I look over here at you folks, it's because I got a kink in my neck, and uh, I haven't got the mobility, so if you see me looking funny, it's not you in particular. Well, it might be, but anyways, it's, uh, you know, this, this neck issue that I've got. But let's, as we, as we open God's word together this morning and continue to worship him through studying it, let's, let's bow in prayer and uh, let's, let's just ask him to speak particularly to us this morning. Father, we come to you. We know that uh, you are God over all. We read in your word that you are exalted above all, whether we recognize it or not. And I pray that we would, Lord. We also read this morning that righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Lord, help us to understand more fully what that means. Without righteousness, without goodness, without justice, fairness, perfect fairness, your throne falls, your identity is lost, and all else too. May we be a people not who think we are righteous, that we are just, but may we recognize that any of that that we have comes from you, and may we exalt you this morning from that perspective. Lord, teach us through your word. Help us to understand how we need to operate in your world, how we need to love others around us here, how we need to testify of your goodness, your greatness, your glory in this world through our lives by teaching us through your word, by teaching us through the power of your spirit in each of our lives. Lead us, we pray, Lord, direct us as we, as we study your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So we've been reading about Abraham's incredible relationship with God. Uh, God called him and, and he has this, this relationship where he's in communion and communication with God, but it's not perfect. It's not a perfected relationship with God. And what I mean by that is God's not with him walking with him on a daily basis, uh, you know, speaking to him face to face. It's kind of like that passage in, in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 13, which talks about us seeing through a glass dimly. And that's the life of faith. We believe God, we know what's true, but, you know, we're still living in this life and there's that separation that we have with God where we just, we have to take what he says, we take him, what he says, at his word. And sometimes we, 
we have all these distractions and sometimes there's sin that's in the way and so there's a distance, a bit of a distance there. And so Abraham is, is living out that faith even then that we're to live out here now. And I think sometimes we think of those Old Testament characters as though, you know, God's just there on hand and telling them what to do every moment of their day and, and sort of leading them along. But Abraham wasn't in a perfected relationship with God. He had a perfect God. He had faith in a God who is perfect. And his faith was a solid faith sometimes. Sometimes he struggled with that faith. And we read last week when God showed up, you know, when God walked up to his tent in the form of the pre-incarnate Christ with two angels, man, we saw how that faith can respond. We saw a man who, who is recognizing the Lord, longing for him to come in and to stay, and he honors him with service that's fit for a king. He wants to just linger with him. He wants to be with him. And, and he serves him. And as the Lord leaves, he, he follows him along. And there's this depth of intimacy in his relationship with God. What if we had that today? A depth and an intimacy, a growing intimacy with the Lord. We say, is it possible? Well, Jesus Christ says to his own disciples, his disciples, his 12, and his disciples, us now, in John 14, he says, if anyone loves me, He'll keep my commandments. And my father and I will come and will dwell with him. And so I know it's still faith and it's still a spiritual thing. It's not a visible thing. But the promise is still there. An opportunity for intimacy with God as we willingly walk with him. But that's not the natural human response, is it? That's not normally what we see in this world today. Um, The majority of what we see is ignorance, a lack of knowledge about who God is, indifference, people who don't really care. And sometimes it's an insolence. It's a, I hate you, God, Because you make me feel guilty. And I'm going to just go and do whatever I want to show I don't care about who you are. And we see these different levels of how people respond. And unfortunately, even those of us who say we believe in him can respond with that that ignorance or that indifference and we just kind of, well, everybody else is just kind of wandering along here through life doing the best they can and we forget we should be seeking him. And you know, when this happens, we should just scratch our head and go, why doesn't God just sweep us all away? When we turn our backs 
on him. When, we, when the majority of us are shaking our fists in his face, why doesn't he just go, I'm done with them. No more. All of them. But you know what? God deals with us personally. Even though he is God over all, and there's so many of us little guys running around here in this world, he doesn't just say, oh, I'm going to treat them like a herd. <laughs> you know? Great, they're good. No, they're not. And just take care of them all. God deals with us in a personal way, whether it be good or bad. We cannot think that he accepts us in the herd because we're better than the unrighteous average. You know, I'm above 50%, so I'm okay. Or we can't think we're okay because we hang out with, you know, those who seem to be the faithful few in the herd. So I'm going to get in that group and, and I'll get taken. I think that's the way most of us start out life. I remember me as a kid. I mean, my parents took me to church and, and I looked at the herd. And I thought, yeah, I'm right about here. or I'm a, a better than that person. Maybe not at the top, but, you know, and we always, if we're given a, you know, between one to ten, you know what the average, the normal answer is? I'm a seven or an eight, you know. We're not going to say we're perfect, but we think we're better than average. And we think, you know, God's going to treat it like that. He's going to say, oh, he fits into this group that are good enough. But God looks at us and deals with us personally. There might be benefit here and now to be better than average. To be okay compared to the rest. People might think of you as a nice person. But one day, this is what this book tells us. We're going to stand before God personally. And we're not going to be compared with other people. What looked all right here isn't going to look so good there because we're going to be compared with God's standard of right and wrong. And there are not many shades in between of okay and that's all right and that's good enough. I, I heard this example this week. You know that the sheep can look perfectly white as it stands against a grassy background. There's a beautiful dark field and oh, look at the white sheep. But you know, you take that same sheep and you put it in front of fresh fallen snow and we find out that sheep are kind of yellowy, dingy and they talk about docking their tails because they mess all over themselves and we figure out, oh, what we thought was white before <laughs> isn't very white when compared to what is truly white. And we think we are all going to stand before a perfect, holy God. And we will either fall based on our own inadequate merit, we don't make it, or we'll flourish because of Christ's merit.
because he alone is sufficient. And through his death, he's allowed us to share in his righteousness. As we believe his death was on our behalf, he gives us the goodness, the whiteness that he has. And we share in it by grace. Not because we deserve it. Not one of us. But because of his grace. So as the Lord leaves Abraham, we're allowed to listen in on a conversation where Abraham asks carefully the very question that comes to our minds when it comes to God and his justice. We want to ask God, God, are you fair? God, will you you be fair when it comes to your judgment of humankind? And after he asks that question, we're going to move into a presentation of the raw reality of who the just and the unjust are, the righteous and the wicked. And you might not think this is the subdued stuff of a Sunday morning sermon, but we're not called to superficiality. We're not called to just come together and and talk about what might make us feel good. Otherwise, I'd, I'd show you pictures of kittens and I tell you an all-dogs-go-to-heaven sort of sermon. But we're called to look at what is real, what is true, and we're called to understand, or at least accept, that truth. A real truth that is just true. It doesn't matter about our opinions, or what we think about it, or how we feel about it. It's truth, and we need to align ourselves to that truth. It doesn't depend on the whims of of human acceptance, because it's God who says it. And you might say, well, this seems a little unfeeling, that God doesn't care what we think. What is true is true, just because he said it. But it's very loving that God would speak to us and he would tell us what is true. Even if we don't like it, if it's true, it's loving. And I heard again something an atheist said this past week when he talked about a Christian who came and spoke to him. He said, you know, I have to think that that guy who came and shared Christ with me was doing something very loving because he believed my life was in jeopardy. How honest. He believed my life was in jeopardy and so he came and he shared Christ with me because he wanted me to be saved like he believed he is saved. What a honest answer from a man who doesn't believe in God what about us are we being honest are we being loving are we speaking this truth in a careful way which this man said 
this guy came and he spoke it carefully in a compassionate way and, and was showing his concern. Well, let's look at what happens in this part of Genesis. We're going to actually finish up chapter 18. Uh, the Lord's unfathomable mercy toward man. And let's read some of this. Verse 22 on in chapter 18 of Genesis It says, so the men turned from there. We're talking about the Lord, the two angels who came to Abraham at his tent. They turned from there and they went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near. He said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He says that to the Lord. Imagine having that opportunity to ask the Lord that. And Abraham goes on, he says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, the city of Sodom. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Abraham's saying, you're better than that. So that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be, far, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what is right? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. I'll show them mercy. And Abraham answered and he said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you not, or will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? Just being five short of those fifty? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not. Don't let, don't be angry, Lord. Verse 30. Suppose there are 30. And they keep going down and down and down. And here in this exchange, we have Abraham carefully, cautiously plumbing the depths of God's mercy toward mankind. And he never hits bottom in this conversation, does he? We could almost think of this as a a comical conversation if the subject was not so serious. We're talking about God's judgment on a whole city. But the Lord continues to respond graciously to Abraham and to Sodom. If there's some representation of righteousness there, he continues to say, down to 10 people, I will spare them. You know, we're not told exactly what inspired Abraham to ask this question. We think, what is he doing here? Is he just trying to figure out God? Is it a genuine concern for men in general or Lot And his family in particular? Or is it a self-centered concern? Is he 
in essence saying to God, let's give them a break. Let's excuse them of their sin so he can feel better and, and hope that maybe the Lord will be lenient with his sin. Because does Abraham have sin? Yeah. And sometimes we're like that. Sometimes we hope that God will be lenient toward great sinners because we think, oh, if they make it in, well, for sure I'll make it. I remember a Andy Griffith show. You remember Andy and Mayberry? And the one program was about a spoiled kid. And as Andy talks to his little boy, Opie, who's been, you know, sort of following this, this spoiled kid all along, and the father goes to take the spoiled kid out to the woodshed to give him a spanking. And Opie's kind of bothered by that. And Andy says to him, well, don't you think he needed a spanking? And Opie says, I don't want to say, after all, he is one of my own kind. He's hoping, you know, leniency on that boy because, uh, you know, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to be under the judgment of the spanking too when I act spoiled. Sometimes we're like that with, with sin in this world. Maybe it was a bit of all of these things. But the point here is not so much Abraham's perspective what Abraham's thinking. The point here is that we see the heart of God. He's patient with Abraham's interrogation, isn't he? Keeps asking the question, asking the question, and the Lord doesn't go, enough already. Just keeps explaining his heart. And as well, God is patient with the perversion of Sodom. I want to bring up again Exodus 34. I know we've touched on it over the last few weeks several different times, but it bears repeating again. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it says, the Lord passed before him. The Lord passed before Moses. And this was the second giving of the law. After Moses had smashed the law the first time around, when he went down off the the mountain and he saw that the people were fornicating in public and worshiping an idol. The people who God had saved and, and opened the Red Sea to help them escape from the Egyptian army. The people who God had been caring for and caring for. And, you know, we think, why God? Why? Oh, it was because of Israel's goodness that God didn't judge them, right? Those people who he saved and who turned their back on him? No. It was because of God's mercy. And he says to Moses at this point, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All kinds of sin. But who will no means 
clear the guilty. This is the way the Lord describes himself. He says, I am a a completely merciful, loving God, and I'll forgive all kinds of sins. He's ready to forgive, but he can't clear the guilty. He's not going to excuse sin, but he's ready to forgive those who are sinners. And of course, we know the culmination of this is all in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can escape being guilty. Because Christ takes our sin upon himself. You see, God's default, he wants to show mercy. He wants to forgive. And he needs to be a forgiving God because there's never a short list of sin when it comes to us, any of us. But he can't simply overlook sin because he would have to cease being who he is and everything else would unravel. I go back to that verse in Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. They're his identity it's who he is and he's responsible for all this and he created all this and he sustains he maintains all of this and if he gives up justice and righteousness he will cease to be who he is and all of this that he sustains will see will explode not just morally but physically as well. Everything will cease to be. Righteousness and justice are foundational. I remember that other verse in Psalm eleven three that says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There'll be no hope. So we get this lesson from Abraham's conversation with God. From this whole situation. And it's a warning for us. The warning is repeated clearly in Second Peter chapter 2. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority despise God's authority so who are these godly people that the Lord is willing to rescue the Lord will preserve what is it that they look like we might be surprised to know that God is mentioned in the or God lot is mentioned in this very passage in second Peter 
as a righteous man. Let me read you that verse. It says, Righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented. His righteous soul was tormented over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. We think, Lot, was, was he righteous? Well, let's look at the first few verses of Genesis chapter 19. And we see Lot's, we'll see some of Lot's unstable misconduct with regard to the truth. It says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Sound familiar? And said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Spend the night. Wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him, entered his house, and he made them a feast baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. If we skip down to verses 8 and 9, when things started to fall apart, when the people came, he says, This is Lot. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. Do with them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot. And he drew near and drew near, sorry, to break the door. Do you see how Lot, first of all, responded to those men coming into the town square at Sodom. He was like his uncle Abraham. We see so many things that are, are just the same. He, he gets up. He recognizes they're, they're special. He goes, he bows down to them. And he demands that he's able to show them hospitality. They come to his home, that they wash their feet, and, and, and he feeds them a feast. He was indeed entertaining angels, as it says in Hebrews chapter 13. And we think, oh, there it is, the sign of, of Lot's righteousness. He was a good guy. But then we remember his choice to go and live near Sodom and then in Sodom in the first place. We see further along in this event how he offers his daughters to the mob in order to protect the angels and we're horrified. We want to say, what kind of righteousness does this man have? Well, his righteousness is the same as our own. If it's just based on our own actions, none of us make it. None of us can be called just. Because there's so much inconsistency. 
in what we do. And as well, we know that if it's something that we produce ourselves, if it's just a nice thing or a good thing we do, Isaiah 64, 6 says all of our righteousness, our best efforts, the things that we do that we think, oh, I'm so good. They're filthy rags. It says in Isaiah 64, 6, we have nothing. If we think our good works done in selfish pride are a replacement for Jesus Christ's self-sacrificing payment of life, we're deluded. We're lying to ourselves. Oh, I don't need Christ. I'm good enough on my own. I don't need the salvation that God is offering to me in Jesus because I'm a good person. Think again. The Pharisees thought that they were good enough. And man, they were tight. They, they did everything according to the letter of the law. And Jesus, what did he say about them in Matthew 5.20? Unless your righteousness is better than the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter into the kingdom of God. What's that mean? We have to be tighter. We have to be more following the rules precisely, perfectly. And we realize we can't. Nobody can. Nobody did. Except for one. Jesus Christ. He was perfect in his actions. He was perfect in his heart. He was the perfect God-man and, and as Satan came and tempted him, he was perfect there, just straight down the line. This is what I'm here for. This is what I'm gonna do. This is how I live to honor the Father. And then we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Him who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's the only salvation any of us ever have. The righteousness of God given to us through Jesus Christ because he became a man he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross. And we, by faith, just, we believe in him. We think, we're sinners. We don't make the grade. We never could. We never will. But God offers his righteousness through Jesus. Romans 3.22 says, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Romans 10.4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law is not necessary for those who embrace Christ because Christ has paid the penalty of the law for us. 
the penalty the law requires. And he changes our lives. All those who have true faith in Christ, we think, why would I live in sin? I want to be like my Savior. I want to be like Jesus Christ. I want to live for Him. Do we struggle? Yeah. Do we fail? Sure we do. But we continue to try and live that new life as new creatures in Jesus Christ. But what about those who dismiss the Lord's sacrifice? What about those who abandon his truth-defining law and say, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do? What does that look like? Well, we see here under this title, The Lost's Unpardonable Malevolence Against God. They're evil, our evil, our unchecked evil. Let's read what takes place here in verses uh, 4 down to 14. It says, but before they lay down, this is before uh, Lot and those men, before they went to bed that night, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, All the people to the last man surrounded the house. Very intentional here. And we begin to get a real understanding of who was righteous in that city. It says all the men. There was nobody righteous outside that house. And we have some question in our minds about how many were really righteous inside that house. And they called to Lot. Verse 5, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance. He shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do not do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow has come to sojourn, to live among us, and he has become our judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and they drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them, the angels. And they shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping, looking for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons in laws daughters, or anyone You have in the city, bring them out of the place for we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. 
So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, get up out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As we read this story, as outside observers to what's going on in this story, not setting ourselves up as, as judges, simply evaluating people's response to God. So we look at this from God's perspective. First of all, it's hard to see Lot as someone who deserves saving. He doesn't. Not one of us do. We see Lot's acceptance and conformity to the wickedness of those around him and we know it all started because of monetary gain wealth want to go live near the city that's where the money is to be made later we see him we'll see him having to be dragged forcibly from the city this disregard that he has For God doesn't engender much compassion in our hearts for him. You know, we don't see him as a, you know, a good guy who just needs a little help. Of course God loved him. That's the way we'd like to see ourselves, but he is the picture of all of those of us who are saved. We don't deserve it. But God comes and takes hold of us and saves us. Thank God for his mercy. But on the other hand, we see the other group who had this unbridled evil. And we're being coached a lot today to show a a complete acceptance of sin. And of the sin of of homosexuality as our society disregards God, embraces sin, and in fact promotes sin. It seems even religious people claim to be enlightened and say things like, oh, God's not against homosexuality, but they obviously have not read the word of God. There are eight different specific passages throughout the Old and New Testament that speak against homosexuality. Then there are all of those other passages that speak about how sexuality should be lived out in a monogamous relationship of heterosexual marriage. Perhaps the most helpful passages are found in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, where homosexuality is listed amongst all the other sins, the sins that we would say are more normal or acceptable sins, unfortunately. We talk about them in that way or we think about them in that way. And it says in those passages, those who practice those sins, in both those passages it talks about those who practice homosexuality, those who practice these other sins of what? Lying, 
adultery, stealing, greed. Those who practice those sins won't inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say just those who are tempted in those areas. Those who had tendencies in all of those areas. But no, those who practice those areas. But when it comes to this idea of homosexuality, let's think about it. Why is it we seem to treat it, some people have treated it in the past, as the unpardonable sin? What's the difference? What's going on here? Well, if we read in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it talks about that sin as a marker for just where our sin has gotten to. It says it's against nature. It's a product of ongoing sin, whether it be individual or as a society. It's the product of what has gone on in, first of all, the twisting of the roles between a man and women that we were given at creation. It's a product of poor marriages and poor marriage relationships that lead to adultery and a rebellion against God in a society that's fixated on sex and the sensual. You see, we need to go back and and fix a whole lot of things that are foundational in terms of our obedience and our relationship with God. And the reason we live in a society that can say, oh, there's nothing wrong with homosexuality is because they go, well, look at heterosexual relationships. Look at the marriages between man and a woman. They're failing, they're falling apart, they're lived out incorrectly. And there's this whole foundation that produces something that we would say is unnatural, that shocks us. And you think of how that happens with sin and in all different areas. And we look at our society and we see the evidence of a society that is becoming unglued. Do you want to talk about unnatural sins? You know there are other societies in this world. I, I mean, I could go to my Latin American background and say they look at North America and go, how unnatural. What am I talking about? You know, we would look at Latin America, we'd say, wow, a lot of corruption in the society, and they would agree with us and say, yeah, there is. But you know, they look at us and they go, well, we understand it. When someone murders somebody, you know, they're trying to rob them, they want money, that's natural. We understand when somebody murders When they're angry with somebody else, maybe a gang war, maybe a neighbor, maybe because of adultery, and they go and kill somebody. But you guys in North America, somebody just like strapping on all their guns and and going in and just shooting as many people as they, they go, that's, we 
weird. That's unnatural, is it? It's becoming kind of normal here. But it's unnatural. There is no purpose. And we have to... We have to see that we're living in a society that is becoming unglued. We talk about mental illness. People suffering. People suffering from all of this other, we would call them more natural sins. Problems in sexuality. Problems in violence. And and this is what we produce. People who just are hurting and they don't want to live and our society has even taken from them the hope of a God who they could look to and say God save me God save me in the midst of all of this I don't understand and with my own confusion and hurt God, save me. We've stolen that from them as well. And so what do we do with this? Well, there are a few points in time when God judges openly sins. And Second Peter talks about God judging angels. He even judged angels who sinned against him. We know he judged in Noah's time in a dramatic fashion. He judges here. He judges in other points people who sinned against him as a warning. This is what will eventually happen. God will judge sinners. It's not simply a Oh, sweeping, yeah, get rid of them all. Personally, I mean, there was even that passage uh, a couple of times repeated in in the Old Testament. It says, you know, the fathers ate the sour grapes and the kids' teeth were set in edge. And as that's repeated, it says, that's just a saying. That's just a proverb. And the idea is that, you know, the, the fathers sinned and the kids they received the judgment. No. It says in those passages, God will judge the father. God will judge the son according to their own iniquity, their own sin. Everybody, it's personal. What is the sin? What is the horrible sin? It's unbelief. There are a full spectrum of how that sin can come out in our life in different ways. But the sin, the real sin, the horrible sin is to turn our back on God and the salvation that he offers to us. Where do I get that from? Well, Jesus, as he spoke, as he came into this world, as he offered salvation, as he preached the kingdom of God to to the people in his time, he sent his disciples into towns to say, proclaim to them the kingdom of God is here. 
A lot of those people rejected him. Rejected them. Rejected the the reality of the kingdom. God had come to earth in the form of a man. And you know what he said? He said the kingdom has come. They've rejected it. More bearable will it be for Sodom on the day of judgment. You can look at all of these different spectrums and we could say, yeah, this sin leads to this, which leads to this, which leads to this. But you know what? Christ came to save sinners. And the whole foundation of the problem is when we reject the salvation that God has offered to us. Especially when we know that truth when that gospel has been preached to us clearly. That is the great sin. And God will save liars. (laughs) Saved us. And I pray that we will do a better job of putting lying behind us. God will save murderers and adulterers and homosexuals. In fact, I, I'll send you, I wanna, I'm going to send you a link at the first of, of this week again. Just a tremendous testimony of how God can take homosexual people, redeem them, this unnatural sin. And it is unnatural. But how he redeems them. And, and man, some of us will be shaking our heads going, Wow, look at how God is using that person. Look at how God is, is working in that faithful person's life now. And, and it will be a, a challenge to us and an encouragement for how we are putting our lives in God's hands and how we, have, uh, how we are giving ourselves over to Him to be led by Him. And so what we see in this, in this passage, in this part of the story, that there's no way to measure God's mercy. God will judge us individually, and anyone who turns to him will be saved. There's no way to measure up with our misconduct. But just go back to point number one, God's mercy. It's endless. And there's no way to measure the unrepentance, malevolence. They're evil. And we understand. We understand how bad sin can be. We hope it got recorded. <laughs> Ken's, Ken's starting to lead his his congregation online. If we can turn the sound down somehow, <laughs> I think we got it there. Okay. They're back on. You're back with us now. Okay. But let's just try and round this out. Let's think about what we've learned. Endless mercy. The endless mercy of God, we need it. As mankind, we need it. 
We need Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And you know, as we look at others and go, oh, their sin, you know, it's always easier to see somebody else's sin, isn't it? That should just turn the light back on us and go, hey, that's you. That's your possibility. Were it not for Jesus Christ saving you from sin and giving you that desire to walk in obedience with God. Let's think about this. Let's pray about this. And let's live for God showing his mercy and his love as we walk in obedience with him. Father, thank you for this story once again, a a story that is disturbing. As we look at the level of sin in a society that is unbridled, and we're scared because we see a reflection of our own society today. We see a reflection of lot in our own lives as we can tend to accept what is acceptable around us. Lord, help us to hate sin. Help us to love you and believe that your salvation is possible, not only for us, but for every sinner. Help us to be a clear voice of truth in this society where we live, in our community, with our neighbors. Because you live in us, not because we have goodness of our own. May your message be clearly lived and spoken by your people in this world today. We pray this in Christ's name. And for his sake, amen.